stand together, please, one more time today. I want us to read together a really important passage. I've referenced it a few times in this teaching series on the Holy Spirit. We are going to conclude that today and go back into our series in the book of Acts. But one more time today, we are going to talk about the Spirit's work, and in particular, His work to make us one and to transform us and shape us as a corporate entity, as the body of Christ. And so, let's read together from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As we've been working through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, we have been struck with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Poured out upon the people of God at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that they might experience the beginning of the restoration of all things promised by the prophets, particularly in the book of Joel, that God would pour out His Spirit upon His sons and daughters once they became sons and daughters after having trusted His own Son, that we might become His family and His new people experiencing progressive restoration, awaiting the restoration of all things. And then the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, witnesses to Christ, the restorer of all things. And so Jesus, in the Spirit, through His church, ushers in the beginning of the age of restoration. And we are part of that age now. We aren't who we were, as I prayed just a few moments ago and as we've talked about through this series. Yet we are not what we shall be, but one day it will be brought to perfect completion, this restoration by Jesus through His Spirit. He is doing that in us individually. And as we will find in this last installment of this brief series in the Spirit, He is doing that in us corporately. He is doing that in us collectively. In other words, most of the commands that we find in the letters, the epistles of the New Testament, are not primarily given to individuals. Primarily, they are given to the collective whole. Now, there are, of course, implications for the individual. When one calls the whole to be holy, it does not mean that you just allow your brother or sister to experience that, and somehow, by osmosis, you experience their transformation. No, the call is for all of us individually and then collectively to be holy. But recently, as we taught through the book of Ephesians, and as we have referenced a couple of times in this brief series on the Spirit, what Paul says at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 is incredibly foundational and incredibly striking. In fact, if we can read over these words and not be struck by the wonder of what Paul is suggesting here, 
then we're missing it. As we know relatively well, the Old Testament is the record of God working among His people, Israel. By and large, Israel was not faithful to God. But God still dwelt in their midst for most of their experience as a nation. In fact, structures were given to Israel to prove this. As they wandered out of Egypt toward the promised land, which had a pretty long interval before they took over and went through it in conquest, they were given this temporary structure called a tabernacle, in which God's Spirit dwelt right in the middle of the camp. In fact, God even told Israel how to set up their camp so that the tabernacle would be in the midst of all the tribes of Israel, reminding them that He was in and among them, this sinful people. Eventually, you get a couple of kings, Saul, who was a miserable failure, David, who was a mixed bag, but by and large good, and then eventually David's son Solomon, who starts off swimmingly really, really well. Israel was at its zenith under Solomon from a territory point of view, from God's blessings, But, of course, we know from Solomon's life, he fell into awful sin, falling far, far away from God. But one of the chief things that God encouraged and led Solomon to do, something that he did not even allow David to do, was to build a more permanent structure in this capital city of Jerusalem, right in their midst, right in the midst of Israel, so that God would dwell in and among the people. And after Solomon builds the temple, God's glory comes and resides there more permanently to show that He is with them. He is with them when they keep His laws, and He is with them when they don't. But eventually we know from the prophets, in particular Ezekiel's prophecy, God's glory departs from Israel because of her sinfulness. And what Paul is suggesting here in Ephesians chapter 2 that the promise of the new covenant, that God will make a people for Himself, that are not just governed by external laws etched on tablets of stone, but on living hearts of flesh in which His Spirit will dwell, that He does that in us individually, transforming us, formerly those who worshipped ourselves, we who sought to establish our own divinity, that He overcomes that rebellion by His Spirit and makes us His own. And He doesn't just do that individually, He is making us into an actual dwelling place collectively. So He's saying in Ephesians chapter 2 that He is bringing in the church together, Jews and Gentiles, is that off? Did it overheat? Let me try real quick. I'm just going to have to tell you what's on the screen in front of me. How's that sound? I'll do that. Paul's arguing in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into this one body, this thing that we call the church. This is a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing. In fact, it created some measure of tension in the first century because Jews and Gentiles had very different heritages and backgrounds. What Paul is saying, however, is that he's bringing these two groups together into one body. And the wonder of this is that it's better than it ever had been. What this church, this new organism made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, we're going to experience is something that Israel even did not fully experience at its zenith. Even at the point where they had this glorious temple in their midst. They did not know the glorious nature of what Paul is suggesting in Ephesians chapter 2. And that is that they themselves will be the temple of God. And it wouldn't just be in one locale. It wouldn't be in the Middle East. It would begin there, but it would spread to Samaria, to the outcasts. And then it would go to the Gentiles, the unlikely. And now for two millennia, 20 centuries, God has been doing that. God has been, through His church, spreading His good news and His power to save all over the globe. And so we are here together today 
and we can say that we are the temple of God. Now, because my projector has overheated again, and we will get this fixed, I assure you. What we're going to talk about today in this last installment in our teaching through the Spirit, His person and work, is the Spirit's work in the church. That's the topic of our focus today, the Spirit and the church. And the first thing that we find suggested here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that in the church, a new community in fellowship with God is formed. So what is it that the Spirit does in the church? Two things, and then first of all today, the Spirit forms in the church a new community in fellowship with God. Now, we have hinted at this today, but let's look at it in the verses. At the beginning of chapter 2, what does Paul say is true about this collection of Jews and Gentiles? They were dead, Ephesians 2 verse 1, in their trespasses and sins. They followed, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They were followers of Satan. Paul could not be more explicit. Unless we think that somehow we are exempt from that, he says in verse 3 that we all once lived this way. And then he says in verse 3 that we were by nature, the way we were born into this world, children of wrath. But God, verse 4, didn't leave it that way because of his rich mercy. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. In verse 6, this other shocking truth, he says that we have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a sense to which even now, as we suggested as we work through the book of Ephesians recently, that is already true of us. Our inheritance, at least in part, has already been realized. The wonder of passing from former enemies an open rebellion against God, hostile to Him in all of His ways, He has brought into His inner courts. We sit down at His table like sons and daughters. You know what this is like at a wedding, right? You go to a wedding and you're a relatively close friend or, or maybe an acquaintance, but you get an invitation. That makes you feel pretty good, right? Especially if it's like an invitation-only wedding. Maybe they cap it at 150 or whatever, and you get invited. You make the cut. It makes you feel pretty good. So you make sure you pick out the right outfit. You want to make sure it's fitting with everybody else. And you get a little card that says, do you want beef or chicken or the vegan option? Um, and you turn that in, and, and you eagerly anticipate the wedding. So you show up, and it's all beautiful and everything. And then you finish. But what you're really there for is the food and the party. And so you, you go in, and there's a board, and it tells you where you sit. And maybe there's like 50 tables or whatever. And the closer you are to the table where the people who've just been married, the new couple, are, the more important you are, right? It's sort of like concentric circles. So, like, if you're table 49, it's like, you know, you got them a gift, and maybe you'll get a Christmas card for a couple of years, and you forget each other. But if you're, like, table 25, maybe you'll, like, trade Christmas cards for a few years. But if you're, like, in the single digits, you're pretty close. But if you're in the wedding party... You get to sit next to them. Maybe you're a really close college friend or a brother or a sister, and then everybody gets to look at you for a while, and you feel really important, right? And so, you know, like you're sitting there with all of your friends, and you're hanging out, and, and, and you get to have, like, the dance before everybody else dances, and you get to eat before everybody else eats, and you get to give a toast and say dilly-dilly to each other, right, because you're up there together at the head table. And this is what Paul is suggesting here. That we're not far off. We're not, we're not just gazing at this, wondering if we get to participate. We, we come to the head table. We are seated with the second person of the Trinity, the Son whom God honors. In fact, later here in the book of Ephesians, the one who makes the church his bride. It even gets that intimate. So we're family, we're temple, we're bride. And who does this? Again, end of chapter 2, verse 21. Who is building us together into this dwelling place for God? It's the Spirit. Paul could not be more profound in his suggestion. 
Now, this suggests a couple things to us by way of implication or application. First of all, we did not achieve this ourselves. There's nothing that you can do to lift yourself up morally, to make yourself acceptable enough to God to get to the head of the table, to be part of this structure, the temple, to be the bride of Christ. This is completely an act of sovereign grace and love, which should give you great encouragement and likewise simultaneously humble you. There is no room for self-righteousness in this new order. And because we have been made alive together with Christ by God, this allows us to take deep and hard looks inside to see the self-righteousness that we are leaning upon to make ourselves favorable to God and realize that that is a farce, it's a myth. And instead, rather than trying to establish our own righteousness and to lift ourselves up as worthy, to instead lead lives of repentance, which then... This, of course, is the second implication or application. We should be pursuing lives of transformation. That is what Paul suggests in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. In verse 23 and verse 24 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you know the story of the tabernacle and the temple, who was able to enter into the inner courts of the temple, even into the structure of the temple itself? Well, it was only the priests. And only once per year was the high priest, the chief guy, to go through a very elaborate ritual to cleanse himself and then to go into the innermost place, the holy place, where God's glory dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant, the promise and proof that He was with His people despite the fact that they were sinful. And thus, on this Day of Atonement, not only would the chief priest, the high priest, be forgiven and cleansed, the entire people would by extension. But now because of Christ, who was Himself the mercy seat, the propitiation for the sins where God's wrath is poured out upon Him instead of us. What is the purpose of our redemption? Well, why was Israel rescued from Egypt? That they would be holy as God was holy. But that external call to holiness did not transform their hearts, which therefore led us, as we've worked through this series in the Spirit, to the promise of the Spirit who would come and indwell each of us individually and now corporately. So that the purpose of the redemption of Jesus Christ is to make us individually and corporately holy. So because we are being made into this dwelling place for God, a new community, better than Israel ever was, a new community in fellowship with God, not estranged from God, not wandering from God, not rejecting God, but instead brought into fellowship with Him, by Him, and for Him. We are to lead collectively lives of holiness, rejecting our tendency toward self-righteousness, instead leading lives of repentance, obeying God in the Spirit. And as we talked about last week and what the Spirit does, He transforms us degree by degree. This means that, as we suggested last week, that the design of our redemption, the purpose of our salvation is the glory of God and the holiness of His people. This means that if there is no progress in holiness, and I'll define that in just a moment, if there's no progress in holiness, we can have no assurance that we actually belong to Him. For He promises to make us His own, not just from a familial point of view, not just legally, not just justification, not just acquittal of sin. But actually, experientially, because as we talked about last week in Ephesians chapter 1, the purpose of the salvation that God has brought us in His Son is that we would be holy and blameless. And one day Jesus will present the church to Himself, Ephesians chapter 5, without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. This means that we are to pursue this 
together. Now, to define holiness, what does it mean that God is holy? Does this just mean that He doesn't sin? Do we define holiness by its opposite? Well, certainly God doesn't sin, but it's much, much more than that. The idea of holiness is the idea of uniqueness, separateness. It's it's not common. So God is holy, but He's holy in many ways. His love is holy. His love is unique. His faithfulness, likewise, is holy and distinct. His kindness, His mercy, His righteousness, His justice, all of God's attributes, all of His perfections are holy. And as we talked about last week from Colossians chapter 3, we are being restored day by day into the image of the Creator, which means that increasingly, over time, degree by degree, 2 Corinthians 3, we are being made into the likeness of God our Creator, Jesus our Savior, by this Holy Spirit. That is for us individually, and that is for us corporately. This means that God does not just display Himself somewhere in the Middle East in a building which obviously no longer stands. But God displays Himself all over the globe, has done so, is doing so, and will continue to do so wherever His church exists. So rather than there being a central temple where His glory dwells, there are temples all over the place. As we come together as the people of God, His glory dwells here. Now, we don't see it in bright and shining light. It's not as though when we finally have the benediction and go out the back doors that a pillar of fire will appear or a cloud and lead us back to our homes. And then when it comes to be next Sunday and we've adjusted to the time change, we'll lead us back here. That's not how it works. His glory is on display in more subtle ways, but real nonetheless. This is why, as we see in Galatians chapter 5, glory is shown through transformation. Glory is shown through character restoration. Glory is shown when sinners become saints, set apart to God in holiness and distinctness. This means that every time the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, produces His fruit in you, glory is shown. This means that increasingly, not just us individually, but us corporately, this means that every time we grow in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in gentleness, in self-control, and other graces, the glory is on display. Now, we are much more like the moon than we are the sun. The moon's kind of cool, right? It's, it's impressive, but it's not the sun. The sun is full of power. The sun makes this planet habitable. If it weren't for the sun, we would not be alive. It's at the center of the solar system. The earth revolves around it and the moon around the earth. But, of course, the analogy is instructive for us. We like to think, prior to our conversion, that we are the center of the universe. We, we want all adoration to accrue to us. One of the striking things about facing our sins is that we realize that we're not the center of the universe. God is. And He transforms us and makes us His own. But He doesn't just do that to give us an eternal address in the skies. Rather, He transforms us in the here and now that we might be like the moon, reflecting the glory of the sun. So that is who we are. We are reflectors. We are mirrors. We are putting on display the glorious nature of God and all of His holy, distinct attributes. And He's doing, in that, he's doing that in us individually. Now, are we, and again, we've suggested this a few times through this series, are, are we all we should be? 
do you love every day like you should love? Do you push back against your natural tendency towards selfishness as much as you should? Have you overcome your tendency toward greed and covetousness? Have you put aside all of your vices? No, right? Not yet. But increasingly, not just we individually, but we collectively are are here and displaying the glory of God like the moon reflects the glory of the sun. And I say to you as, as one of your shepherds here, as one of your elders here, we see this. We, we see you growing in these graces. One of the great marks of a spiritually healthy church is that they are willing to repent, which involves both confession and facing up to our sin and reliance upon the Spirit to transformation that those sins might be replaced with graces. And we see that in you. And I want to encourage you with that, for sometimes it is difficult for us to see our own progress. So what is the Spirit not just doing in us individually, but in us collectively as a local outpost, a sub-temple for Christ in the Spirit? What's He doing? He's making us a dwelling place for God. What must it have been like for Solomon and his people the day that the glory of God came and and filled that temple? It was made of gold and precious stones. It was was impressive. It, It would have put awe into their hearts when they saw it. I mean, these are people who who lived kind of in huts, right? And had a few sheep and and raised some wheat or whatever. But you go to Jerusalem and this wasn't just kind of better than Bethlehem or Nazareth or Shechem. It, It was way better. It was impressive. It was like something you had never seen before. But more impressive than the gold more impressive than the artisan work and the precious stones, more impressive than the priests and all of their attire, was the glory that came down from heaven and filled that place. But that's what we experience now. It's just, it's maybe not quite as tangible when we see it. But maybe that's because we're not as in tune as we should be to see what glory actually is. The new covenant is better than the old. For we don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience the presence of God. It's here. And so may the Spirit give us eyes to see what glory actually is. First of all, the fact that God has made us His own in His Son and is making us His own actually experientially. This means that as we live together, we should do so in a spirit of love. We should do so in a spirit of unity. Which leads us to the second thing, that the Spirit does in the church. He doesn't just make us into a new community in fellowship with God. He makes us into a new body serving in love. And and this is how we see the glory. Beginning of chapter 4 here in Ephesians, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Again, the purpose of our salvation is the glory of God. What will be characterized by? What will it look like? Verse 2. Well, humility, gentleness, patience. We will bear with one another in love, and we will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul will go on to say, down through verse 16, that Jesus, before he ascended, left gifts for the church and still does so today. Gifts that will equip the church to make her holy as she serves together in unity. So what does the Spirit do in the church? What's His work among us collectively? Well, as we see at the end of Ephesians 2, He makes us into a new community and fellowship with God. That's profound. And I think we fail at words to describe that. Well, how do we see this glory, this glorious presence of God? Well, we... We serve together in love, and He transforms us progressively together over time. And He gives us gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4, the gifts are people. 
First they were apostles and prophets and then evangelists and pastors and teachers who then equipped the other people to do the work of ministry. And we do this together as the body of Christ. Christ is the head and, and we are the parts of the body. But then what role do we play individually in displaying the glory and experiencing it? Let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, just as a parenthetical statement, if you are like me and love verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible, we will be back there next week in Acts as we continue our series. But we sometimes have to step aside and do some other series, this one more topically, to explore what the Bible has to say as a whole about a particular topic, and that is where we are in finishing this series today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul outlines how the church is to live together as a unified whole using their gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. A pretty good litmus test for those who are truly God's people. Now there are, verse 4, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So, Paul begins to outline what some of these gifts might look like. But just like Corinth had problems in other ways, they had problems serving one another and seeing themselves as more important than another. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We are one unity, one collective place for God to dwell. Verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And of those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a still more excellent way, which is what Nate read to us earlier from 1 Corinthians 13, that no matter what our gifts are, if we don't dispense them or use them in a spirit of love, we are worthless and useless. So love for God and love for one another glues the body together. 
keeps it cohesive. That's back in Ephesians chapter 4. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are to love each other harmoniously in the use of our gifts. So what has God done through His Spirit for the church? He has made us a new community in fellowship with Himself. And He has made us a new body that serves in love. And progressively what He's doing is He's displaying His glory in and among us and then through us. This means that we all have gifts to bring to bear on the rest of the body. Now, I hear this from time to time. You may not know what your gift is. It's one of the things that the church is for. The church is a place where you can figure out what that gift may be. It may well be that your gift is an amplification or a a repurposing of what you might have been naturally good at prior to your new birth. That makes sense a lot of the time. It could well be that there is some new spiritual possibility wrought in you, worked out in you whenever you are born again. That's possible too. But no matter the case of what God does in putting something that wasn't there before or amplifying something that was there already, you have something to contribute to this body. You have the ability to make this theological for just a moment. You have the ability individually, uniquely to yourself, to put the glory of God on display. Now, your gift in and of itself is not glorious. Paul is sort of suggesting that here. What the Corinthians were doing, as they did in other cases, is they were looking at their gifts as an opportunity for their own glory, which is why 1 Corinthians 13 is where it is. This is not about your glory. This is about the glory of God. And as we seek to love each other humbly, harmoniously, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, God gets the glory and we don't. The question becomes, how are you using your gift? Now, maybe you don't know what it is. And if you say, I don't know what it is, come talk to one of our leaders and we will help you explore that and foster that and nurture that. We will try to position you in such a way that that gift may be made more clear and grown or nurtured. Most of us have some kind of sense of what those gifts may be. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 12. Paul begins this chapter by appealing to the church to lay their lives down as sacrifices to God. This is in keeping with what He has done to make us His own. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So again, a call to humility. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. How are we to be this new body serving in love? We are to do so faithfully. We are to do so encouraging one another. We are to do so humbly, using our gifts for the good of another. Now, herein lies one of the great dangers of the gifts that we've been given. Just like the moon is not glorious in and of itself, but merely reflects the glory of another, we are not to be those that draw attention to ourselves, but rather to draw attention to God. The danger in having a gift and maybe especially those kinds of gifts which are, are more useful for greater numbers of people or impact greater numbers of people is that we can use them to draw attention to ourselves. So Paul warns about this in the church in Rome. He warns about this in the church in Corinth. Peter will talk about this in 1 Peter chapter 4. We have to be very careful that any gift that we have been given is employed faithfully, but not employed for our own glory. So let's take up both of those things by way of application. Are you using your gifts faithfully? Now, if you don't know what they are, we've already talked about the fact that we can help you figure that out and nurture that. But if you don't know, or more likely you do know, are you? 
are you employing it for the good of another? Now, it's quite possible that you could be using the wrong gifts. In other words, you may not have the gift that you are seeking to employ, which will just frustrate you and those around you. One of the first things that you must do is make sure that the thing that you are doing is is actually in line with your gifting. But establishing that we can get there, are you doing it? Are you perhaps one who has the gift of generosity? Are you giving liberally? This is not, of course, a sermon on giving or tithing or anything of the sort. But, of course, we're all called to give. Some of us can give a lot more, some of us a lot less, but all of us are called to give. For those of you who have the gift of giving, do you do so faithfully and generously, or do you instead hoard? You have the gift of service. Maybe you see things that need to be done, and then you just go do them. Now, what's the danger of the gift of service? Well, sometimes you can look over your shoulder and notice the people that aren't doing it, either because that's not their gift or they just aren't employing it, and you can become angry and bitter. Now, in a church like ours that has so many kids that have so many needs, if you're serving those kids and you see holes and some of the kids are not being served the way you think, it's easy to look at the ones who aren't doing it and be angry at them, or set up or tear down or any such thing. One of the great dangers for a person with the gift of service is to look down upon those who don't serve like you do, which then can very quickly lead to grumbling and complaining and gossip. Do you have the gift of leadership? Are you employing it faithfully or do you grow lazy in the execution? Do you have the gift of mercy? Or have you become so jaded with people that have hurt you in the past when you have extended mercy to them that you feel spent? I think the list of gifts here in Romans 12 and then back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are probably just suggestive. They're probably not exhaustive. It's likely that most of us have more than one. It may well be that you're a good teacher and a good leader. It may well be that you're both good at mercy and giving. Often these things come in pairs or tandem. But the question, first of all, is are we employing our gifts the way that we should? And if we're not, in some way or another, the body is not healthy. You know what it's like whenever maybe you go back to the gym in January, right? Like you get through February and you realize like, you know, my gym membership is a total waste of money. And so you give up on it. Like maybe around June when you know you're going to go to the beach, you go do a little bit of workout, but... Then you give up again because school starts and it's super busy. And then basically like the holidays begin at Labor Day and don't end until Christmas. And then it's time to eat, right? Barbecues and Thanksgiving and pound cake and turkeys and roast duck and all that kind of stuff. And and then you feel kind of nasty. January rolls around again. It's time to, to get fit again. And so you decide, I'm, this year I'm going to run. Now the problem is, you know, you're not in any shape to run, but you get out in the neighborhood and you start to run. And then you like, you tweak your ankle, Right. And so not only does your right ankle hurt, you limp a little bit, and then your left ankle starts hurting because one part of your body's not working properly, and it affects everything else. That's kind of like what it's to be the body of Christ. When one part is hurt or one part is not functioning like it should, it affects the rest of the body, which means that in one way or another, we've all got to be engaged. So, so are you? Are you engaged? Listen. We are going to have to, until the grave, until the restoration of Jesus is complete, we are going to have to fight our tendency toward self-care and self-love. It's just going to be our natural tendency. The problem, though, is that we are so curved in on ourselves that we, we don't even see the needs of others very often. In fact, I would say to you that if you do struggle with, with inwardness, if you have an unusual tendency toward selfishness or self-focus or or in another fashion, if you have an unusual tendency toward darkness and, and toward depression and sadness, one of the very best things you can do is go be with other people and use your gifts to bless them. Now, does that solve everything? Is it, is it a fix-all? Uh, I'm not saying that. But you know as well as I do that, that hiding out, becoming inward, becoming isolated never fixes these problems. It doesn't fix the problem of selfishness. It doesn't fix the problem of darkness. Remember, 
we are not just individually the temple of the Spirit, we are collectively the temple of the Spirit. We are collectively the body of Christ, and we are therefore to, to execute, we are therefore to carry out the, the, the gifts that we have, use them, employ them for the good of the whole. So the Spirit works in the church to make us into a new community and fellowship with God, and this is profound and amazing. But the Spirit works in the church to make us a new body serving in love that the glory of God might be put on display. This means that when you, a formerly selfish person, give away your time, you're putting the glory of God on display. You're showing His love. When you, a formerly uh, self-righteous person who judges, instead extends mercy to one who has hurt you and disappointed you, you're putting the glory of God on display. He who calls enemies to be His children seated at his table. Whenever you give away your money, you who formerly were a hoarder, seeking only to make yourself rich at the expense of others perhaps, and you give away some of those resources for the good of another, you are putting the glory of God on display for you are dispensing the treasures that have been entrusted to you for the good of another, leveraging them perhaps for those who have the least. And we could do that with each of the gifts. We could go through each one of them and show how we formerly used our resources and gifts, all of our talents, for ourselves. But instead, when we look outward, not curved in on ourselves, but, but gazing upon the needs of others as members of this mutual body and use them for others, we're putting the glory of God on display. And so the fact that we are being made into a new community in fellowship with God and given the charge to serve the body in love, whatever part of the body we make up, these things go together. We are the temple of God serving the body of Christ. This means that this church, an outpost of the kingdom, an individualized temple of Christ in the Spirit, that we are experiencing the renewal of all things here. Now, is it perfect? course it's not. It's not complete yet, but we are to experience this together. And, and then I would say we've got to be careful to also realize that God is doing this that we might call others to it. Most of our neighbors around us who seem to need nothing are empty inside. They keep dispensing and using all of their talents of time and treasure for themselves, and they're not happier for it. There is a better way. There is a new way. There is a better life. There is a happier life. There is, there is a place, a body that they need to see where God dwells, where His people are being transformed. That means that you have the responsibility to tell them and you have the responsibility to embody this in your own actions as you go out. So, so today, we are the body of Christ collected. After our benediction, we will become the body of Christ scattered, proclaiming and displaying the glory of God in and among us. This is what happened in the early church, right? God poured His Spirit out on His sons and daughters, and then what happened? Well, at Pentecost, thousands came in. It was inescapable. Now, God may not bring those numbers in droves to us, but more should come. More must hear and more should come. So, not only should we be experiencing this fellowship with God by the Spirit, not only should we be serving one another in love and the Spirit gives all these gifts, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, we should be trusting the Spirit to take the good news to those who have not yet heard, for only He can make them new. Only He can give them new birth, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in John 3. And only He can transform them and actually make them happy. So the Spirit is at work in us individually, as we talked about last week, making us increasingly more like our Savior, restoring us to the image of the Creator. But the Spirit, in this final installment in our series, is making us different. He dwells in us. He's transforming us and enabling us to serve each other 
for the glory of Jesus, our Savior. We are experiencing the restoration. And one more time, we aren't yet what we want to be, but we aren't who we were. And may Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, continue to be faithful to us to make us who we are to be, both now and in the age to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now by your Spirit, I pray that you will help us to understand, and more than understand, to embrace this notion that we are your people. We pray that you will help us, your people, to understand that you indwell us. We are your temple. This is a shocking thought. We who are evil, who don't deserve the least of your mercies, you dwell in us collectively. This means that we should not be unkind to each other. It means we should not gossip against each other. It means we should not slander each other. It means that we should serve one another in love. For, for Jesus, if you have chosen to live in and among us by your Spirit, if, if we are your temple, then we must treat this with great care and compassion and love. So thank you that we have been made into a temple by your Spirit. I pray that we would not only just appreciate this, but this would change the way we live together, that we will pursue self-righteousness, but instead repentance, that, that we would live together in harmony and love, and then in that harmony we would serve each other. We would figure out as best we can the gifts that have been given to us and, and leverage them, use them faithfully for the glory of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we give you praise, you who have made us into a temple for God, you who have gifted us that we might serve each other. Please continue to be faithful to us and transform us. And then I pray that you will bring others in. I pray that those who are lost and wandering and, and maybe not even know it, that they will sense something very distinct in us, that the God of eternity dwells in us, and He's transforming us, that you would intrigue them and encourage them to, to come and consider that through the proclamation of our lips and the display of love in our lives, that you would make others your own and bring them to be part of this temple as well. So we pray these things in faith, in the name of Jesus, for his glory and our mutual joy.